He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. Indeed, he is. Uh, and that's what we come to talk about this morning. Uh, we are in uh, the front side. You don't know it yet. Uh, we're actually in week three of Easter. You may know that. You may not know that. You should know that, but you don't, whatever. Uh, Easter is seven weeks long, which gives me, since, well, I wasn't here last week, uh, which, by the way, it feels good to be back. Uh, I was sad to not be here last week. Um, but it feels very good uh, to be with you this week. Uh, anyway, I've got five weeks of Easter left to do something with, and so I've decided to go ahead and spend five weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, if there is a chapter in our Bible that is uh, dedicated to uh, thoughts about the resurrection, uh, it is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to start uh, with verse 1 and plow our way through 58, I think, 58 uh, verses uh, of a large chapter uh, that is all about the resurrection. Before we get started today, uh, please join me in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come this morning and we know that you are here with us. We feel your presence, but God, we need more. We need a heart within us that is broken and shattered and able to be pierced by your truth, by your love, that you might not just be here among us, but that your spirit might be within us. This is what we desire, Lord. I pray this morning that my words be your words, that you help me get out of the way, and that uh, Paul's text for us this morning might speak to us in new and fresh ways, uh, but perhaps some old ways as well. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, This morning... Uh, I come with one very simple question, and in many ways it's, uh, it's one that uh, perhaps I feel a little silly even asking, but I'm going to ask it a few times throughout the service, and the question is, do you still believe? <clears throat> do you still believe? And I mean it, like sincerely. Do, do you still believe in the core of it all? Because I think this is actually the question that Paul is asking in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 11, uh, which, by the way, uh, since uh, our projector uh, isn't working quite right, I'm going to need you to have your Bibles open today. Uh, We're going to jump around a little bit, too. So go ahead and and get those out and and get ready. but, uh, but yeah, this is, this is what Paul's talking about. Uh, he makes it very clear that uh, right up front that he is reminding, he's reminding the Corinthians what he has already taught them. And not just him, he is, he's not the only one who taught them this. It turns out a, a few others have as well. And he makes very clear what it is that is the gospel, that's at the, the center and the core of it all. And so 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, our passage today, is essentially Paul reminding the Corinthians, this is what you used to believe. 
At some point, it's what certainly I've been preaching and you believed. Do you still believe it? And I'm just going to do what Paul did. <laughs> I'm going to say what Paul said. I might try to add a little historical context, try to add a little bit of, um, you know, like there are some Greek words behind there that you might not notice or recognize. I'll try to kind of point those things out to you. But just know this. I'm essentially saying what Paul says in 15, 1 through 11. So without further ado, let's get into it. It starts this way. He says, now I would remind you, and there it is, right? It's a reminder. He's not trying to say something new. He's not trying to uh, be fresh. He's not trying to uh, be relevant. He's just saying, I'm just going to remind you what I already said, brothers. I'm going to remind you of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you. And if you don't know what gospel, maybe I should assume, but I don't want to assume. Uh, the, the word gospel means good news, right? It's the good news. What you may not know here is the word right next to it, preached, also means good news. So it's literally the good news that I good newsed to you, right? Uh, it's, he's making it very clear. This is Good, good news. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's good news, right? And good news in this day and age uh, has, uh, it has a, a political uh, uh, flavor to it, actually. It's something that a, a herald would come into town, and he would kind of stand on a, the highest point he could find, and he would gather a crowd and say, hey, good news. Good news. Guess what? Your king has won a victory for you and defeated the barbarian hordes. Great news. Now we're all going to have a party because of it. This is something that would happen in this day and age. And so here we get Paul saying, I'm reminding you of what the good news is. And I'm good newsing it to you, right? I'm preaching it to you. And he says, and you received it, just so we're clear. And in fact, you're even standing in it, he says. And then he says, and by which you are being saved. Currently, you are being saved by this good news. The barbarian hordes have been defeated. Only it's not that, is it? It's, it's death and sin have been defeated and you're being saved by this good news that Jesus is the Christ and that he has done this for you. And then he goes on, he says, if you hold fast to the word that again I preached to you, I, I good news to you, if you hold fast to this good news, well, well then you'll do well. And you're standing in that salvation. And he says, unless you believed in vain. Unless you believed in vain. I said this morning that my, my goal is to simply say what Paul said. And to give you the gospel as Paul sees fit to give the gospel to the Corinthian people. 
And he makes it a lot simpler than I think we sometimes make it. Sometimes we add a lot of things to the gospel, and, or, or at least we, we add things to what we say is the essentials. But Paul really distills it down to, well, I'm going to say, five things here. And he almost enumerates them, and you'll see this in a moment. Um, and there are things he doesn't add, and, and there are things he leaves out. In fact, if I, if I had you turn there, I could turn you to the front end of, of the book of Galatians, another letter he writes in which he chastises these people for adding things to a gospel and to the gospel. And he says, you know what, and by doing so, it's not a gospel at all. And so he has, he has whittled it down to the essentials here. And this is what I come to give you. I come to remind you. This is what he says. For I deliver to you as of first importance. These are the primary things that you believed at some point that I, Paul, have preached to you and you received them and you stood in them. Maybe you stand in them and they're saving you. And this is what I deliver to you of first importance. That Christ, and that's point number one, Christ, we'll go through each of these, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that's number three, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, number four, and that he appeared to Cephas, number five. And not just Cephas, he appeared, it turns out, to a bunch of people. And he lists off people after people after people, and he concludes with his own self. Christ even appeared to me, he says. These five things are simply what we need to talk about. When Paul uses the language Christ, I know we hear it as a name, right? Jesus Christ, it's practically his last name, but it's not. He is the anointed one. He is the long-awaited king. He is the one who has come to slay the enemy. And he does so in the most unusual of ways. Turns out the enemy, I've said it before, is not Rome. The enemy, as Paul says very clearly, if you just kind of glance at the end uh, of this chapter, the enemy is clearly something else. The enemy is much bigger and has been around much longer than Rome ever was and Rome ever lasted. It's death and it's sin. And in verse 54, Paul actually, he sings this taunt and he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And he says, the sting of death, it's sin, and the power of sins, the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord, our King, Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the anointed one, the one who slays the enemy, who is sin and death. This is what Paul is saying. 
So when he starts off, point number one, by saying that this is the Christ, it's so easy to just glance over that one simple word. There's a lot going on there, isn't there? But moving on, second thing he talks about is that this Christ, Jesus, well, he died. And he didn't just die. He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, right? He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Um, No uh, Jew that we're aware of expected uh, the Messiah to die in this fashion. And so Paul will even say at the beginning of this this letter right here that uh, to the Jews it's a scandal that that he preaches that uh, the Christ has died on a cross. This is a scandal to the Jewish people is what he says at the beginning of this letter. And yet it is uh, exactly what we get, right? That Jesus indeed died And of course, the resurrection becomes really important at this point, because if Jesus just simply died, and we don't have a resurrection, well, then we got a real problem. But he starts with, Jesus died for our sins, but then he says this, in accordance with the scriptures. And there's two things I want to tell you right now. Uh, The first is that we often go to, and and so I'll give you the low-hanging fruit and and the one you're kind of maybe expecting here. Just keep your finger here and turn to Isaiah 53. I mentioned it a few weeks ago, but it's, uh, it's, I mean, impossible to not bring it up. In Isaiah 53, we get a very specific account of what this might look like. And what Paul might be thinking, if you're in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4, 5, and 6, we read something that sounds a whole lot like Christ dying for our sins, right? Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced. For our transgressions, for our sins. And he was crushed for our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we're healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all, the sin of us all. This is um, one of the most powerful passages, in my opinion, that we find in all of the Old Testament. What I see in the Old Testament uh, um, is, is maybe what Paul says elsewhere, which is, is a lot of seeing through a glass darkly. Right, is, is, a, is a reaching for a truth that is out there, but not always seeing it as clearly as you most certainly do by the time you get to the New Testament. But in Isaiah 53, it gets pretty close to a clear statement of exactly what we find and expect the Messiah to do. 
So this is point number one when uh, Paul says that, uh, that Jesus died according to the Scriptures. It's, it's a kind of a pinpoint accuracy of what he might mean by this. But I think there's actually another layer to it all. And it requires some biblical knowledge. It requires you understanding not just a few texts here or there. It requires you understanding the whole of the Old Testament narrative. Where it begins, how it proceeds, and where it leads to, and how Jesus fulfills it all. So if you will, turn with me to Deuteronomy of all places. Keep your hand in 1 Corinthians 15, but Deuteronomy chapter 30. What we get in the book of Deuteronomy is uh, the second Deutero telling of the law, namas, Deuteronomos, the second giving of the law. And it's very much, um, <laughs> well, there's a lot going on here, but we get all of these law codes and then, uh, I'm just going to very briefly give you the overview of, of chapter 28, which uh, is, uh, the, the front half of it's really nice to read because it's a lot of blessings. It's essentially saying, if you keep all these laws, well, great news, uh, these are all the ways in which you'll be blessed. Uh, and then the back half of it is the scary part because it says, uh, if you don't keep all these laws... Uh, these are all the ways you are going to be cursed. <laughs> and it uses that language, cursed, cursed, cursed. It says it over and over and over again. And you, if you're looking at it, you'll notice uh, that the cursing section is a whole lot longer than the blessing section. <clears throat> and then they get to uh, chapter 29. And after the blessings and the curses, there is a, a, a renewal of the covenant itself. And essentially, Mo, uh, Moses is saying all right, do we really want to do this? Do we want to enter into this, uh, this covenant with this God in which we know how it all works? We've been given the laws, the rules of the road. We know what happens when we keep them. We know what happens when we break them. And they all say, yeah, let's do that. And then we get to chapter 30, which is the part I want to get to. And basically what happens here is God knows this isn't going to end well seems Moses knows it too, actually. And that at some point, they may find themselves in the land for a while, the promised land, that is. But then at some point, they're going to find themselves as outcasts. And he even said, so he offers up this, this notion that we need to be ready to repent. We need to be ready to be forgiven. We need to be ready for someone outside of us to come in and to rescue us. We need to be ready for the God of the universe to intercede on our behalf. And so, for example, in verse 4 of this chapter, it says, If your outcasts, and here he means if uh, <laughs> the, the people who have been outcast from your society, not just at a small level, but like quite literally in an exilic kind of way, in a Babylonian exile kind of way, or a Syrian exile kind of way. When this happens, if your outcasts are in the 
uttermost parts of heaven is the way he describes it, which is a wonderful description. Uh, and he's saying, if they're flung anywhere and everywhere, from there, the Lord your God will gather you. And from there, he will take you. And he will return you home. And this is what we find in our law. We, we recognize that there's something going on here that, that we know it's all going to fall apart. We know the story's not going to end well. But we also believe in the promise that God will bring it back together somehow, some way. And then, I have to turn the page to the next one. In verse 15, same chapter, chapter 30, we see this. It's a famous passage. He says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Moses is saying, these are your options, right? Death and good, or sorry, excuse me, uh, life and good, <laughs> death and evil, right? Life and good, death, death and evil. And he goes on, and I'll just read, I, I actually, lo I love all of this. I, he says, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but you're drawn away to worship these other gods and to serve them. And I would just add, whatever those other gods might be in your life here and now, and they're manifold, there's plenty of gods out there for you to be worshiping, and we do on a regular basis. He says, I declare to you today that you shall surely die, that that is a path to death. And so when we get to the New Testament and we get to Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15 and he's saying to us that Jesus is the Christ who has died on behalf of our sins, the ways in which we've walked away from God and not followed Deuteronomy 30 here. Well, Jesus has taken those upon himself and he's taken that death right there upon him. Number two. Number three, he was buried. And he was buried. Uh, there will be more to say about this uh, in the coming weeks. But the burial part of this, I think, is actually significant uh, in that there's a real body to be buried. There, we could talk ancient uh, heresies and whatever. I, I think they connect with some modern heresy. The point is this. It wasn't like Jesus died and then suddenly uh, the body didn't matter and the soul is all that mattered anyway or the spirit is all that mattered anyway. There's something significant about Jesus' body needing to be buried. And the bodily nature of not just this life, but the life to come. Different bodies, Paul actually makes it quite clear in 1 Corinthians 15. He gets very specific 
It's a fascinating chapter. I highly recommend you keep reading it over the coming weeks here in preparation for what I say so that you can call me out when I say something wrong. But seriously, there's something important about the body, and he's going to get to that, and I will get to that as well. Number four is that he was raised again from the dead according to the scriptures, right? He was raised according to the scriptures. And here, here again, we get to two ways to thinking about the resurrection. Because we get the according to the scriptures part. And we could try to point to a specific scripture. I used to have my New Testament students do this, and I would ask them, and they would, they would always find the first one. They, they would find the Isaiah 53, you know, died according to the scripture. And then I would say, okay, what about the raising again on the third day according to the scripture? And they would kind of like pace about and not really know. And then I'd give it as homework and someone would come back and they would, they would find uh, a passage that's in Jonah, chapter 1, uh, 17. And, and Jonah goes into the whale and, and returns after three days, right? And that becomes uh, something of a proof text, I guess, uh, for the sort of death and resurrection that we find in Jesus, And indeed, Jesus actually, in his own ministry, talks about the sign of Jonah, and there's definitely something there. And so we could be looking for that proof text, but here's what I want to do today, actually, is is I want to point us not to the, the, the proof text, but to the narrative itself, the, the broader narrative of what's happening in the Old Testament, and how Jesus' resurrection fulfills the story of Israel that indeed led to their death, but it can't stop there. There has to be something more. There has to be a bringing back into life. And so we could point back to the Garden of Eden and the introduction of death and sin there. We could, we could point to uh, Israel's narrative and say uh, sin and death were introduced uh, through the law and the giving of the law and the breaking of the law there. And then we could point to the prophets and we could say, at some point this has to be overcome. We need something more. We need life. We need the removal of sin. We need the ability to break free from those things that you and I as human beings keep getting entrapped in. And it's Jesus through his resurrection who becomes what Paul calls the first fruits of this way of living. It's a new way for us to be human. Jesus was always this way. But through his resurrection, we see this glimpse, this hope of what we all yearn for and what we all long for. And then number five, he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve and to five hundred people. And to Paul himself. And there's, uh, there's a lot that could be said here, actually. Paul spends a significant amount of ink on this fact alone, the appearances. And Paul is clearly using these witness examples as, uh, as a strategy for convincing the Corinthian people 
And he's basically saying, I'm not the only one, folks, who saw Jesus raised from the dead. If I were the only one, you could call me crazy and you could just kind of you know, forget it, it ever happened. But I'm telling you right now, there was Peter. By the way, Cephas is Peter's other name. Uh, there was the 12. There were 500 other people. Uh, and oh yeah, me too. One who was, uh, in my translation, untimely born. I was born later than it all. But he still appeared to me. And he demonstrated that he indeed was resurrected from the grave. And he now reigns on high at the right hand of the Father. And he is that king who has defeated death just like we've always needed. And so he points us, and he pointed the Corinthian people, but us too, sometimes we need it, to those witnesses. And he says, I'm not alone here. There's all these people who can vouch for the truth of these five things. That Jesus is the Christ, that he died for our sin, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the, on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to a bunch of people. Which leads us back to the original question, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you trust? I don't want you to trust based on a convincing case, uh, because lots of cases can be made. I mean, it's not a bad idea, actually, to have a case ready in your head in case somebody asks or something like that. Uh, because the fact of the matter is, um, to be fully honest with you, there are days when trust and faith is hard. Do you have those days? I'm sure you do. If you don't, talk to me. Uh, man, maybe you're doing something right that I'm doing wrong. <laughs> I've got something to learn. Faith, I truly believe, is a daily question. The question to be asked, do you believe, is not one you answer today and then you're golden the rest of your life. It's the one that you ask today and hopefully you say, yeah, I believe and I'm going to walk in that faith and I'm going to act like somebody who believes that. And then you wake up tomorrow and you say, yeah, I believe that. I'm going to walk in that. I'm going to be that person. Then the next day, you wake up and you say, do I have faith today? And hopefully you say, yeah. Yeah, I do. And as your faith grows and is built up, you realize that there really is something to this Christian living. There's something different about living that kind of life as opposed to any other kind of life you could live. And Paul's going to reference these other ways of living. And he's going to say, if it's not true, if you don't believe it, and if Christ really didn't uh, die or it wasn't raised from the dead, let's all do something else. But he says, I know it because I witnessed it. I know it because I live it daily, and I want you to know it too. Do you believe? 
Let's pray together. God, you call us to faith. You call us to trust. You call us to a life of obedience. God, for some of us this morning, we can say very easily, yes, I believe. And God, praise God for those people and for their walk. We need them in our world. God, I'm certain there are some people who say, I don't know. I don't know if I believe. Today, I don't know. They may even say, yesterday I knew, but today I don't know. And God, for those people, I would ask that you would show up. That you would give them uh, a very clear knowledge of your presence, of your working in this world. And then, God, there are those people who would say, no, I don't believe, I never have believed. But you know what? I'm interested. I'm open. And God, it's those people. It's those people, God. Use, those, use that opportunity, that openness, to speak directly to them, to reveal yourself to them. Use this church, Lord, to reveal you to the people of this world who are open to you. God, we love you. We trust you. We desire to obey. Teach us how to trust you more. In Christ's name we pray, amen.